thanks for listening to the Rob at Desk podcast. I'm Rob Blasi. Today, I had a chance to talk to Dr. Rick Sessoms of Freedom to Lead about what it's like to lead and develop leadership in other cultures, different countries. What does that look like for the church? And what does that look like for the American church, too, and the obstacles we face and all that? And full disclosure, I do know Rick because my brother works with him. I think Rick's a good guy. It's fun to listen to him, fun to talk to him. So I hope you enjoy the conversation with Dr. Rick Sessoms of Freedom to Lead. Two, one. Mr. Rick Sessions, how are you doing this morning? Doing very well, thank you. Rick, am I saying the last name right? Sessions? Is that I, I'm always concerned with last name. Actually, it's Sessoms. Sessoms. Sorry about Mr. Rick Sessoms. And is it technically, do I have a, is it doctor or is it Mr.? Well, I, I go by Rick, but but uh, I have I have uh, degrees. Yeah, I've got a doctor of ministries and I've got a PhD in organizational leadership. So you're saying I just butchered your name right off the bat? I should have just gone with Rick, like we're friends and been good to go. Right. Okay. All right, Rick. We'll we'll stay with there. So you run an organization and started it called Freedom to Lead, um, which. And all disclosure, my brother works with too. That's how we met. So, but I, it's an interesting organization to me and how you guys do things. So, how do you find the need for? First off, how do you explain what Freedom to Lead does, and then we'll go into how you started it. Well, um, I've been doing leadership development, uh, particularly with faith-based organizations, faith-based organizations for probably 25 to 30 years now. Okay. Um, and I got into it because uh, I was seeing uh, within churches and ministries particularly, uh, I've also worked with some businesses and so forth, but mostly in the church world and ministry world, I was seeing that uh, leadership is often quite unhealthy. Uh, it's, it's uh, I mean, even though there's there's good people, we just really have not learned how to translate uh, the issues of character to the arena of leadership. Uh, so as I was traveling the world, and I've been probably 50 countries now, Whoa. Uh, what, what I noticed is that, uh, is that the, the typical pastor, the typical ministry leader, uh, tends to lead more like the power leadership of their respective culture than they do the leadership model and example of Jesus. Could, could you so, give an example of the, when you say power leadership of their culture, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll break that down. So, for example, if you, if when I traveled in China, for example, I, I saw that, um, that, that people function like, like, uh, you know, big bosses. Um, I, and if I go to Africa, um, the typical church leader functions like a, uh, a, a, a tribal chief. If I go to Latin America, the, uh, the church leaders tend to function like little dictators. In Russia, like oligarchs. In India, like gurus. So um, basically, uh, the church has adopted power leadership models of their respective cultures and here in America is the CEO for example okay so uh, those models don't really reflect the model 
the teaching example of Jesus himself. So I got into leadership development because I was burdened about that particular issue. And so the last 25 or 30 years, I've been involved in that arena. About, uh, I don't know, back in 2000, I suppose it was, I got involved with a, a network called the Lausanne Network, uh, something that was started by Billy Graham back in 1974. It's a group that looks at strategic issues related to world evangelization. It's global. And so I was involved with that, and I was leading a group called the Leadership Development Working Group in Lausanne. I was on the board. And we were preparing for a congress that was held in Cape Town, South Africa in 2010. And long story short, uh, we began to look at the key issues that were uh, challenging the church in the 21st century. And um, there were a lot of issues, as you can imagine. But one of the issues that came to the came to the surface was this matter of uh, what we call orality, O-R-A-L-I-T-Y. And what was happening, what we saw in this study that we did called the Global Inquiry, we, we found that um, thousands and thousands of churches are being planted and people are coming to Christ around the world through uh, biblical storytelling what we call orality. Okay. And so storytelling groups would get started and churches would get planted and people would be discipled through oral-based means. In other words, non-literate means, storytelling through uh, pictures, through music and so forth, through drama, through dance. But in that study, we found that there was no one developing leaders for these communities of people for these churches that were sprouting up all over the world. And so as leader of the leadership development working group, I was asked, well, what's your working group going to do about this problem? And I said, well, I have no idea. My, my whole leadership development career had been working with executive leaders, executive coaching, teaching. I was teaching in a doctoral program at the time. Um, so I didn't know. But long story short, after about two years, uh, I really sensed that somebody needed to jump into this arena and begin to address this question of raising up competent Christ-centered leaders for these oral-based communities, uh, using story and images and music to, uh, to address that problem, that, that challenge within these now it's, you know, probably millions of churches that have been planted around the world uh, among these populations of people. Would you say this is, uh, we, is this kind of like, go ahead. when you say this, it kind of reminds me of like, what did the church look like before, like right after Jesus, before, say the first couple years before the Bible was established? Yeah, I mean, when when people look at the early church, they recognize now that probably only about 5% of the early church was literate. So what that means is that um, what would happen is, it like when Paul wrote his epistles, mm -hmm. uh, and even before that, when people came to the synagogue um, or the tabernacle or whatever it was, there was often somebody that would read to them while they were listening. Uh, so 
the the uh, whether it was the Torah in the Old Testament or the Bible in the in New Testament days in the early church, uh, the Bible was written to be heard, not to be read necessarily, because the vast majority of people that were part of the church were not readers, and so um, even even back then, uh, the church was largely an oral based society, and that's why you see that the the majority of the Bible is in story form. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's uh, it's either in story form, and there's proverbs or psalms. Psalms are, of course, songs, mm-hmm. uh, music. And so um, the reason for that is because uh, those were oral-based communities. And the fact is is that most most communities around the world, even today, even those people who can read, whether they can read or not or oral-based communities. In other words, they prefer to learn through story, through images, through music, rather than through reading and writing. Would the, you that, know, your, would that your be, sort of conceptual frameworks. Would that be an example out here, even in the States today, where you have more people going to a concert or going to movies than to someone just doing a public speaking event or just even yeah, in the library? Absolutely. Yeah, I, every, every aspect of our culture, if you look at the business world, if you look at the arts, if you look at uh, whatever it is, we have gone to an oral preference society. The only two institutions in the West that have not yet preferred an oral-based approach or a story approach to learning and communication is the academic world and the church. Hmm. Those two uh, institutions are still behind when it comes to those two, uh, when it comes to how we communicate. Color me shy. Of course, of course, story, story is winning the culture. Yeah. So if you look at how how Hollywood is winning the culture wars, it's through telling better stories. Um, so this is not just for those who can't read; it's for our postmodern culture as well. So uh, this is why story and images and music is such a important topic as we look at communication in today's world. Even if you look at a lot of the business business books coming out today, is telling your brand through story. There's a lot of those oh, sure. popping up Absolutely. more and more these days. So you say what you're saying makes complete sense. So then, how do you translate when you're going around the world? Like you have to then understand a culture and what they're looking for to relate those stories to them, to sort of break down, I guess, for better words, like the narrative of their leadership style versus what. Yeah, absolutely. You, you got it right that spot on. We have spent the last 10 years or so developing a program that is addressing those cultural issues. What I've done is basically taken the same, virtually the same stuff that I was teaching to executive leaders um, through the years, through the last, as I said, 25 years, and taken and and modify that to use story and images, pictures, if you will, mm-hmm. and music as well as drama to communicate those leadership principles to these oral-based communities. And uh, uh, these people, some of them are can read and some of them can't. But regardless of their literacy, these cultures prefer to learn through those medium that those media as opposed to conceptual frameworks, abstract thinking and so forth that we have 
used in the academic arenas and often in the church. You know, your three points in a poem <laughs> is typically the way that preachers preach in the West, but that's not communicating to people very well. It certainly doesn't communicate in the majority world. So that's why we're using those techniques to, uh, to communicate leadership principles in all across India and Africa, and we're in about 48 countries now. And what would you, what would you say is one of your bigger hurdles than translating, I, I would say, if maybe converting is the wrong word, leadership styles in these different cultures? Well, there's all kinds of hurdles. Um, there's first the cultural hurdle in general because you're dealing with cultures that are very different than ours. Um, so, for example, when you're talking about leadership specifically, um, some cultures have what we call a <clears throat> low-power distance uh, cultures and others are high-power distance cultures. What that means, for example, America... The U.S. is a low-power distance culture. What that means is that our view of authority, we, we see pretty uh, a flattened hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, flattened hierarchies tend to work better in Western cultures and West German, uh, West European cultures and so forth. But when you go into Africa, you've got a high-power distance culture. What they're used to, is leadership where there's a lot, there's a great distance, but perceived distance between the leaders and the followers. And so what kind of leadership actually works in those cultures is different than the kind of culture, the kind of leadership that wouldn't be embraced here in the West. You've also got individualistic versus collectivist societies. Here in, here in America, the individual is championed. And Africa and India, the, the group is championed. So that's going to make a lot of difference in the way you go about leading. Um, that's important, those distinctions. <clears throat> so those are cultural issues. But then you get into the whole question of how do you take concepts, leadership concepts, and, and communicate them using story? Mm -hmm. Of course, that's a big challenge because I was trained uh, my PhD work is all conceptual. It's abstract um, stuff. It's systems theory and all that. Taking and translating that, contextualizing it, not only with the cultural issues, but also using story to do that has been a great challenge. And so that's been our work for, over the last decade. Interesting. So then on, on the surface level, then, what would you define? I think everyone seems to define leadership differently, or at least they have their different wrinkle in it, maybe. How would you define leadership? Well, leadership is primarily influence. Um, I mean, if you want to break it down to one word. Okay. It, um, it's, you know, sometimes we conflate position with leadership. Uh-huh. And the reality is leadership's not really about position. It's, it's about influence. And the degree to which you influence people is the, is the degree to which you really lead them. And the way you can parse that out is that some people follow individuals regardless of whether they have a position of authority over them or not. Um, and in, in contrast to that, think about the leaders in your life, uh, the positional leaders in your life that you've been under, 
the moment they stopped having the position, they no longer had the, had the position, it's likely that you stopped leading them or stopped following them. In other words, you were you were following them because you had to. So that's the difference. Leadership is not really about position. Leadership is about influencing other people, whether you have a position or not. So uh, certainly some people that are influential have positions, but it's not necessarily about position. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Because then it makes sense too. Like there's some of those people that you were under at certain times in life that they were great leaders that you then stayed connected with. They might not have the title of or authority to lead you anymore, exactly. but you now sort of stay in touch with because you appreciate. And I guess it would go from a leader to a mentor type role. Yeah, and, and again, you used the good word authority. See. Positional leaders is about authority. Uh, when you think about Jesus, for example, he had no positional leadership over anybody. Mm-hmm. He had no organizational leadership, authority. His only authority was from his Father in heaven. And so when you think about his leadership, when he said to Peter, come follow me, it was because he was influencing Peter, not because he had positional authority over him. And that was his life, and that was the model that he used. And so leadership is much more complex than just having a position. Absolutely. So that's what leadership is in general. Now, if you want to drill down into what Christ-centered leadership is, that's a whole new dimension. No, absolutely. But, 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 um, but leadership, in, a, in, a, in essence, is about influencing other people. And what, you mentioned like some of the stuff we'll, we'll – narrow it down, I guess, to the American church, for a better term, because I guess that's a common denominator we both have. What would you say is, you were mentioning like some issues with the American church. What would you try to fix in the, in the church here with the leadership styles that you've noticed? Not that painting them all bad, that's not the point, but where you were mentioning, made a comment earlier where there's, you know, lacking leadership I guess. Yeah, well, that's a big question, and it's it's not. There's not a single answer to the question. And to just a disclaimer, I've spent the last I don't know 25 years or so. My my wheelhouse is international, not so much North American. So whatever I might say about the North American church is more observation rather than experiential. That's fair. Um, professionally speaking. So having said that, what I have observed is that, and having been a pastor myself for, you know, in my earlier life, I would say that um, that pastors are typically taught in seminaries uh, good theology. They are taught, uh, or bad theology, but they're taught <laughs> theology. Um, and they're often taught how to preach, but they haven't been taught to lead. And so um, I find that pastors tend to try to lead from the pulpit, and there's a whole lot more to leadership than that. So um, that's one problem. Okay. So pastors have not really been taught to lead uh, in 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 a real sense. And secondly, I think that there's a lot of managers in pastors tend to be managers rather than leaders. Um, what I mean by that is that managing 
nothing wrong with managing. Managing is needed. But the difference between leadership and management is that leaders influence people toward change because change is necessary for anybody, any institution, any group of people. So leadership is all about aligning people and influencing people through the change process. Managing is bringing about stability. It's about systems and procedures and policies to establish stability within organizations. Both are needed, but they're not to be confused. That's the difference. And so when you're talking about pastors, pastors tend to be about uh, management Mm -hmm. as opposed to leadership. They don't, the typical pastor doesn't really know how to lead people through change. They know how to stand up and preach about change, but they don't know how to lead people through change. Their abilities, if they haven't developed abilities at all, are in the management area, not in the leadership area. I hope I'm not confusing in what I'm saying, but that's what I see as a primary problem. No, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. For a manager, it would almost be like a like a task manager, if you want to call it that, where it's like, hey, we got to make sure Sunday morning's ready. We have to make sure Sunday school's ready. We have to make sure, you know, check the boxes Absolutely. with the stuff that in a typical week or a month gets done at a church. And when, when I don't know about, like my thoughts of leadership is someone who's thinking around the corner. What, what are we going to face coming up? What are the hurdles coming up that we have to prepare for? Absolutely. And it's not just thinking about it. But it's the ability to actually lead people there. Yeah, and that takes a that takes a skill. It's not just um, something you you know happen into accidentally. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so you hit it on the head. You know, they've got their programs that they're managing. Um, they develop their policies. They develop their procedures. They develop what someone called a well-oiled machine. But in order to lead people through change effectively, change that's going to be um, sustainable and long-lasting requires a skill. And I I don't see that skill as highly developed within most pastors uh, within North America. Now, there's exceptions, obviously, to that, but um, I don't see it across the board. Now, knowing what you know then with, like, what would you say the church needs in North America, like to help develop that or I mean, by all the numbers that you read, at least I see that the North American church is shrinking or being less consistent where the regular attender used to be, you know, I've, you know, so almost every week. And now it's, if someone shows up twice a month, they're considered a regular attender. Yeah. What, you know, what, you know, I'm not vouching for that. You know, God has an attendance card watching us, but there is something to be said about being in church and being in that community and technology has changed that where people can watch and be apart from other places. Not the same, but you know, it's not, the the world's not the same. It was 10 years ago in some of this. Well, again, I I think that it's a, it's a complex issue and there's not one answer to that. Yeah. But if I could just put an overarching uh, statement to it, it is that, the the institutional church in America is, as you said, is declining. And there are some uh, 
prognosticators that are suggesting that the church is the the church if it has a future is not going to look like the church as we know it today um it has to change in order to keep pace with society we have we have lost the culture wars mm-hmm. in, in, by and large um and so what does the church look like in exile which is what we're actually facing today in North America. We have moved past the post-Christian church, and now we're dealing with an exiled church. We have been marginalized in terms of our culture. So if you look back at the sons of Judah in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, what did they do when, they, when the church, when the Israelites were in Babylon? They were exiles. There's a whole study that needs to be looked at in terms of where the church is and where it needs to be going. But again, going back to the reality that as we look at these questions, it it takes the ability to lead people there. And if you don't have the ability to lead people there, I mean, you've got to have a vision of that first. But even if you've got a vision of that, the ability to lead people there is a skill. And, of course, we need the mind and eyes of God in all that as well. Uh, but but that's, that, I see, is, is a main problem that the declining church in America faces as we go forward. Yeah, like you said, there's not one answer to it, that's for sure. For sure there's not. And, and again, it, it's a very complex issue, but I, I suppose we've got to back up and ask, what is the church today, and why are so many people leaving the church? Um, and we talked about, our, you know, how we communicate, for example. Oh, yeah. Well, we continue to communicate by taking a text, and we say that there's three points in this text that you need to know in order to be a good Christian. I got a Bible. That's, not the, way our, that's I, I, not the way our society learns today. I mean, that's just a small, that's in, in the context of the bigger issue, that's just one. Yeah. But, but that's, uh, that, that is one and it's significant. I got a Bible question for you uh, based on that. Like we're like, I see a lot of teaching and I know there's bigger words that describe it, but like, um, you have people that take a verse and teach on that verse and pick other verses in the Bible that help support that thought or that idea, which I don't think by itself is wrong. And then you have people that go, we're going to teach through the book of, you know, Ephesians. And we're going to go verse by verse all the way through. And those are the two basic different preaching styles, if you want to call it that, it, you know, at least of how they go through the Bible. And one of the things I was, I've been thinking about, and you can, I'd just be curious on your thoughts on it, is where the Bible, like you were talking about earlier, is was meant to be read. And so... Like, and obviously like the chapters and verses are just like addresses so you can find things easier. It's, you know, that's not how the author wrote it. Like a bunch of little proverbs that come together to make a book for the most part, you know, so I, my fear is that a lot of the stuff gets taken out of context when someone, you know, pulls a verse out of Isaiah to say this about, you know, whatever subject and then pulls a book out of, you know, a section out of Ephesians and you go, what was the context of that verse? And you're, are you just pulling out two sentences that back up what you're thinking versus, you know, what's the contextual statement behind what the book is saying? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you're you're onto something there. Um, when you think about the early church, when Paul wrote, say, to the Ephesians, um, there was somebody in that Ephesian church that could read. Most of the people could not. And so what would happen is that Paul would write his letter. He would send it to the church. The person that could read would stand in front of the group of people, the congregation, and would read that letter aloud as people were hearing him read it. He didn't read one verse and sit down. Or, by the way, they weren't verses back then. It was just That's just our way of, in a literate world, of being able to identify what we're talking about and where we want to go. But it was a letter, and it was writ, writ, written to be heard by these people. And to give you an example, in the 21st century, I was talking to a youth pastor one time okay. that had started to use more biblical story rather than you know, pulling verses out. He said, my problem was when I was talking to our young people and I'd pull a verse out of Corinthians, for example, and say, you know, don't have sex before marriage. And they would look at me and they'd say, well, what does that verse in Corinthians have to do with me in the 21st century? That that's no has no relevance to me at all. Um, now, when you tell the Corinthian story, when you help people understand what the Corinthians were facing in this town of Corinth with all of their pagan gods and all of their temple prostitutes and all this kind of stuff that was going on, and then you tell that story, then it begins to take on light. And it begins to, you, people begin to understand what the real issue is as it relates to us today. And so that's why he began this this youth pastor began telling stories to his biblical stories, the full story mm -hmm. to his uh, young people. And he said it had a dramatic difference in their lives because they, they began to understand, Oh, I see how this story relates to me. It's a very, very different approach to your point. No. So yeah, yeah, pulling verses out, um, really doesn't, I mean, how do we connect to somebody that's in the, that wrote this ancient book? And we just pull a verse out here or there. What does that have to do with me? And so that's why story is so powerful. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, because like I see people that do it purposely out of context to sort of try to disprove the Bible or say, hey, look, the Bible doesn't make sense. And I, my whole thought on stuff is like if you can't hold different standards and beliefs, like if we were going to see who's a faster runner, we're going to run a hundred meter or, you know, I'm going to say, Hey, Rick, you got to run a hundred meters. I'm only running 10 meters. That isn't, pr we're, we're holding different standards to our beliefs, but if you can't go to someone who, who's trying to pick the Bible apart, go, you can't just pick and choose verses that, you know, out of context, we're doing the same thing as Christians. So I can right. see why, they, I can see why they want to go. I can just pull these two verses out, you know, completely out of context and say, look, the Bible's barbaric because of this. And you're going, yeah. it's like, well, you're doing the same thing Christians are doing. So it's hard to, you know, it's wrong on both teams. It's not just wrong for one team to do it. Well, a, a number of years ago, I wrote a book called Leading with Story. Yeah. I and, uh, it, and and it, that book, uh, I had one person to review it. His name is Walter Hansen. And Walter Hansen was a professor of New Testament at, at Fuller Theological Seminary for his career. And he's retired now. But 
Walter Hansen, I mean, you can read this for yourself. It's written as an endorsement in the front of the book. Hansen said that if he had to teach New Testament over again, now he's a New Testament scholar, mind you. Mm -hmm. He said if he had to teach the New Testament over again during his career, he would learn to tell it through story. Because even Paul's epistles, when Paul sat down to write his theology, Paul's theology came out of his own story. It came out of his own experience. So this stuff is not uh, existential, if you will. It's written in the context of a life. And it, it's 3D, in other words. It, it has, it has the, the nature of flesh and bones on it. It's not a sterile theological construct. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's rooted in life. It's rooted in experience. It's rooted in story. So Hansen says, if I had to do it over again, he said, I'd learn to teach this through the story of Paul as opposed to uh, antiseptic theology. Interesting. All right, Rick, I'm going to change gears here a little bit here as we're wrapping up. And you always say that just so you know, if you say, and you're wrapping up, it means people you get people's attention again, despite we may go a little bit more here. still. So just, okay. <laughs> I don't know if you guys do those in your stories and like, and finally, and you still go for a while. I'm like, Oh, we're wrapping up. So, uh, but a uh, uh, couple of quick personal questions. How long have you been married now, Rick? Uh, almost 43 years. Okay. So you, I would say you've, I mean, you're, I would say you're a fair expert in the field. You have a number, you have at least two kids that I remember meeting. I don't know if there's more that I don't. I have two. Yeah, I've got a daughter who's going on, will be 40 this year, and a, and a son who's, how old is he? He's 38. Okay. So then the question I have is, like we talked before we started recording, I got a big day coming up this year, and and uh, my first marriage at 40, hopefully last marriage, only trying to do this once. So what I'm trying That's to do. That's a good thing, yeah, by the way. I think it's a real solid goal. and uh, <laughs> And so... It's her first marriage too, so we're our goal here is to try to do this only once. And so the question I always like to ask people is like, what what advice would you give a guy like me going into this, especially as I just turned forty last year, going into this for the first time? Like, what what would help help me only do this once? Well, two things, uh, and first of all, let me just just tell you flat out. Um, to say that I'm an expert on marriage is laughable. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm still learning every day, trying to figure out this woman I'm married to because of this. And, and this is why I said that I've done a lot of counseling of young people or people when they're getting ready for marriage. And one thing I tend to tell them is that when you stand before that altar and you promise, that for better or worse, rich or poor, till death do us part, you're you're not only promising those things to the person standing in front of you, but you're also promising those things to the person whom that person will become. And I can guarantee you the person they become over the years will be different than the person that you're marrying on that day. And so it's one of the most profound promises that you'll ever make. And so that's the reason why till death do us part is one of the greatest commitments 
of our lives is because we don't know what the future will bring. We have no idea who this person will become, not really. Uh -huh. um, and, and so even though, you know, all the things seem to be in place for a wonderful life, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer means something. And so um, I think one of the things that my wife and I did right, one of the things, um, we've done a lot of things wrong, but one of the things that we did right is that when we entered into this covenant of marriage, we entered into it that we took divorce off the table, that no matter what, we would not divorce. And so that was never an option. And, and so we've been able to work through all the changes and the twists and the turns, not easily, but we've been able to work through those because that was never an option. I can say that if it were an option, we may have taken it because life does bring all kinds of challenges, not the least of which is I'm a different person today in many ways than I was when we first walked down that aisle. And so um, I would say to you, uh, you're likely to face the same reality. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And I appreciate it. A hundred percent. So before I let you go here, Rick, is there anything we missed that you want to say real quick? I'll, we'll add the link to freedom to lead on the description of this. Is there anything else? No, I just, um, I just solicit your prayers and the prayers of anybody who's listening. Um, we, uh, are seeing God work in pretty spectacular ways around the world through freedom to lead. Um, as I said, in 10 short years, we're in, I think 47 or 48 countries of the world now with many, many thousands of people that are part of the program that we're offering. So, uh, it takes a lot to keep that kind of thing going. Um, and we're, we're in some transitions right now in terms of our leadership team and so forth. So um, we solicit your prayers as we go forward. And uh, I appreciate working, appreciate very much working with your brother, John. He's a gift to us. And so I uh, appreciate this time with you. I appreciate it, Rick. I like my brother too. So we're on the same page on that. That's for sure. <laughs> well, best of, best of luck. I, maybe that's a bad word, but may God be with you as you enter into your marriage and uh, trust that it'll be a, a great time of getting to know one another in these initial initial months and years. I appreciate it, Rick. Thank you so much. We'll stay in touch. God bless. All right. Thank you, sir. Bye.